And my piece of advice is give zero fucks. Mm. Not in the things that you do. You should care very much about the things you do. But give zero fucks about putting aside your feelings so that other people would feel comfortable. Um, give zero fucks about looking bad or looking wrong or saying the wrong things because at the end of the day, being genuine to yourself and to the community and you know your family is, in my opinion, the most important thing. That was Ty Viet Fan sharing some wonderful words of advice. I'm Noah Alvarez. Welcome back to another episode of the My Mike and I podcast, episode 155. Thank you guys for rocking it all the way through, whether you're a new listener or someone that's been listening since day one. Greatly appreciate y'all. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and follow the podcast on whatever platform you are listening on. Also a reminder too, we are on YouTube. You can check us out on there at well, I guess not app, but just Noah Alvarez on YouTube. You can watch this podcast, the same interviews, but with visuals. So check that out. Also, be sure to check out Mike and I on Instagram at my period Mike and period I. I have fun promoting a lot of visual and audio snippets. Um, I also like to take photos with the guests if I'm recording in person, post them on there. And it's a good way just to kind of promote the podcast online. Also, be sure to check out True 100 Radio, spelled T-R-U, the number 100radio.com for different podcasts like the You're Doing Find Me Ha podcast, The Morning Routine, and plenty more podcasts. So be sure to check that out on, check them out on their social media pages and on their website at true100radio.com. All right, now let's get into the guest for this week's episode. Can I get a drum roll? This week's guest is none other than Ty Viet Fan, the councilwoman for Ward 1 in the city of Santa Ana. And now this was a really fun conversation. We talked a lot about her upbringing, the Vietnamese American experience, as well as stopping anti-Asian hate plenty more stuff too about her background and how she got into politics it's a really fun conversation thank you again ty for letting me interview hope to do this in person one day when things open up a little bit more other than that guys hope you enjoy this conversation with ty vfm and myself well first thing i wanted to do is congratulate you for winning last year's election i know it was quite some time ago but i did want to ask you when did you first know that you had won the ward one council council person um race last november so the honest answer (laughs) so there are two answers officially when the orange county registrar's office you know counting ballots unofficially we were pretty confident that had won the night of the election Mm -hmm. um i was pretty far ahead of the next closest person and i think it was like 15 points ahead so we, we were pretty sure just based on the data that we had that there weren't going to be enough kind of, um, you know, close that gap. And then the next day it, it did go down, eventually went down to about 11%, um, but, you know, not very much. So, mm-hmm. so we were pretty confident, but wanted to wait until it was official okay. to say anything. <laughs> awesome. Well, backtracking a little bit, what made you first want to run for a city council person when that opportunity came? So I wanted to run, uh, it's kind of weird because let me just kind of backtrack on that, which is most of my life was not involved in politics. Mm -hmm. Like I am so impressed by, you know, the young people in our city and students who are involved because 
for most of my life, we never um, politics at home. I'm a, I'm a first generation refugee and we grew up very poor. So my mom has a third grade education from Vietnam. Uh, so politics is just isn't something we discussed. Um, and it wasn't until like law school really that I got more involved. I mean, I was voted because you kind of told you're supposed to vote. Um, but it was really when I went into law degree program as well as my master of public policy program where I realized that like the, inv- the value of local government mm-hmm. and it's like, it's not sexy. It's not cool. It's not dramatic like Congress, though it can be. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so, but when you really think about it, you know, where you live, where you go to school, where you work, where are there parks? Is it safe for you to walk down the street? Is someone picking up your trash? All of these things are dealt with at the city council level, mm-hmm. not the state or federal level. Mm-hmm. And so I was working, I am still working at the same law firm. And uh, during this time was when I heard that there was going to be a, um, what do you call it, like a redistricting, like that we, the city of Santa Ana had been for violating the California Voting Rights Act for discriminating against its Asian uh, residents. Mm. And that's when the districting happened. I had a five-year plan. <laughs> like I was like, I'm work, being an attorney, like it's hard, man, like to figure out being the first in your family to graduate high school, college, law school, and then get into white collar. Um, but then when this happened, one of my really good friends, uh, Mayor Pro Tem of Garden Grove, Kim Brittany Swin, she's like, no, you're running now. Because mm-hmm. <laughs> she kind of like pushed me before I thought I was ready, but she, she knew I was going to be ready. So I was prepared when the time actually came to run. I had announced January um 2020 during the women's march mm-hmm. and i was like i'm gonna run in board one this and that and then the recall was certified like mm-hmm. heard about it, but no one was sure no one was ever no one's ever sure that a recall or a referendum or anything would qualify but once it qualified it was like well i guess i can just sit out or because one it the old ward six was encompasses where i live and most of ward one mm-hmm. Um, and because I think that member what is just truly, she stands for everything I'm against. And so I was like, let's do it. <laughs> let's run, take that opportunity and run. Um, of course I decide to run and about a week later, uh, COVID hit. Mm-hmm. So it was a really crazy, you know, path to get to running for office and, and choosing to be on this, uh, journey, but yeah, it got me here where I am today. So I'm very excited. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned earlier, too, that you're the first to do a lot in your family, right? First to go to school, mm-hmm. first to kind of get into that white collar job. How did, well, I guess what, what the question I want to ask you is like, where did that motivation come from? Where did that inspiration come from as a kid to want to pursue those things? Mm-hmm. Well, so my mom always said stay in school. Mm-hmm. Not that she ever really understood school would be like here in the United States, obviously. Um, but it was really my friends. I just um, had friends who did well in school because they cousins and uncles and parents who did well and were, you know, pharmacists and stuff like that. And because, well, my friends like school and I like my friends, I just did what they did, <laughs> right? Like you kind of um, birds of a feather. And of course, I'm very lucky to have had friends who were kind of on the straight and narrow for the most part. Um, but 
it was also like learning. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like it's it's very difficult, I think, as a first generation immigrant, uh, someone growing in a household where you know we at home we watched. Uh, Chinese soap operas that were uh, dubbed in Vietnamese. Like it wasn't even really Vietnamese movies. It was like Chinese <laughs> movies in Vietnamese. And it was, you know, listening to Vietnamese music. And so like the only way I really, you know, got to know quote American culture was at school and everything was so different from how it was at home. And so that was just really interesting to me. I just like learning. And so that kept me going. But for most of my uh, like elementary, middle school career, I was, I guess I wasn't ESL, so English second language, but I was kind of in the slow class because mm. when they test you into kindergarten, I said, I answered in Vietnamese. And so I kept answering Vietnamese. I took, you know, kind of slower classes. And it wasn't until middle school where I tested really well on a standardized test. A teacher's like, you should be in an honors class. Like, all right, cool. <laughs> it didn't make a difference to me. Like, I didn't know any better. Um, and that, you know, that one moment, in my opinion, really set the trajectory for the rest of my educational life, right? Because every step you have, it gets you to the next level, the next honors, the next AP course, the next college, mm-hmm. the next law school, the next career. Um, and so, you know, it just took one person. But otherwise, it, it was mostly because I did it. <laughs> <laughs> but that's good to hear because I know, you know, I'm also a first generation Mexican American. And so I have that a similar experience in the sense that my parents didn't have that college background. They weren't familiar with a lot of the process, but they always pushed school on me. There was always school, 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 stay in school. But I think a lot of times, you know, whether it was my peers or people who had similar backgrounds to me, they got into the wrong friend group and then they went down a wrong path. So I think that's cool, though, that you're able to kind of like distinguish and, and find a good friend group to kind of help motivate you and to continue on to do what you're doing now in your career. Yeah, I mean, talk. There's a core group of friends, it's mm-hmm. me and my sister and two other women that we grew up with and known in, since I was seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, one used to live with us. And we always talk about how how unusual it is that we are where we are and reflecting on that because I'm an attorney uh, and I have a master's degree. My sister is an optometrist. She just graduated from optometry last school uh, last year. Um, one of my friends is uh, graduated from Cal State Fullerton and the other graduated from pharmacy school uh, this past May. And we all kind of talk about how, you know, we knew people who did drugs. We knew people who sold drugs. We knew people in gangs. We knew people were, you know, in quote bars <laughs> or running bars. And that could have been a life that we fell into um, had we not, in my opinion, been lucky mm-hmm. because, you know, there were people watching out for us. There were teachers who cared what we were doing or, or and we had each other, not all the time, but we did. Um, and I think that really helped us go forward. Um, and then here we are. Mm-hmm. So just trying to, you know, pay it back and really ways to like, how do I use this experience? How do I use this education? How do I use this um, personal history to, to give back? And so that's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> and it's, it's been a crazy so far. <laughs> okay. Well, to backtrack a little bit too, you grew up in this section or the area that you now represent in the, uh, the 
west side of Santa Ana and the Ward 1 now. But what do you remember most from your childhood? What are some things that stood out to you about that part of Santa Ana? So first, that it never felt like Santa Ana. Hmm. Like a lot of people who grew up on the west side, um, you know, we went to Garden Grove Unified School District schools, mm-hmm. not Santa Ana. Um, most of the people who live on the west side are Asian, not Latino. And we just, I think, kind of always felt like we were more Westminster, Garden Grove, Fountain Valley, especially being Vietnamese American. And um, so some of the most distinct things were really kind of how free it was <laughs> when we were a kid. Maybe it's just that's how I was raised. But, um, you know, kids playing outside in, in front yards or shared green spaces in townhomes or fourplexes. And I actually visited um, last year. We, we were shooting one of the videos to kind of talk about my upbringing. And there are fences up now. Hmm. There are like iron fences up and all blocked off. And it's just such a different um, place hmm. in some of the old neighborhoods that I grew up in. Um, some of the other things I really are the number of like Buddhist temples. Yeah. I was raised Buddhist. Um, I went to Buddhist Sunday school. That's where I learned how to read and write Vietnamese and spoke Vietnamese at home. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's just so many. <laughs> yeah, I, I would bet money if I were a gambler, bet money that, you know, Ward 1 in Santa Ana has the most, uh, like the highest concentration of Vietnamese Buddhist temples in America. Mm-hmm. Like everywhere, every corner is like a Buddhist temple of some sort. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, those are just some of my memories. I remember walking down Harbor and, you know, visiting one of my friends, but I also remember getting honked at, um, by passing cars, getting cat calls. And I'm like 11, <laughs> Oh my God. you know, well, it's yeah. One, you know, that speaks kind of a lot of the patriarchal norms and sexism, but it also speaks to the fact that Harbor Boulevard is well known and mm-hmm. notorious for being um, a magnet for vice activity, uh, prostitution and things like that. And, you know, those are just things that stick out in my mind. And I went off to college for 10 years. I went to UCLA undergrad, uh, was off for a year and a half, then went to USC. And just whenever I'd come back, it was just you know, the stores were closing down. There's no activity, especially in 2009, 2010. Mm-hmm. And, and so those are kind of the things that stick out in my mind um, when I think about how my childhood has, and growing up in Santa Ana, going away and coming back, it's changed. I'm really hopeful that, you know, being on this dais, I can help advocate to bring that part of Santa Ana back into the city. Mm-hmm. Um, the Vietnamese American population, but also um, obviously just our Latino population, all the residents who uh, live on that side who don't feel like a part of this community. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's something I didn't appreciate and maybe understand till I was a little older because I grew up right there off of Fairview and Warner. So I believe that's considered District 2 now with the re-election or the redistributing. But I do remember, you know, as soon as you go a little bit further down Warner, it is Fountain Valley, but if you go up certain streets like Euclid or uh, New Hope even, or Harbor, like you said, there's a lot of temples. I believe uh, I spent a lot of time at Rosita Park and across the street from Rosita Park is a temple that looks, you know, I remember as a kid, I was like, whoa, like, am I in a different country? You know, like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. It, it felt like that. And, um, but it's something that I think, like you said, kind of gets forgotten about a little bit because Santa Ana is predominantly Mexican. It's predominantly a lot of, you know, Mexican American restaurants or, you know, street vendors and stuff like that. 
on the other side. But like you said, there's a big chunk of that. And like you said, it kind of gets sometimes pushed with Garden Grove or pushed with Westminster because Mm -hmm. further down the street, then you do see more of that. But I think it's cool that, you know, you're not only you not only grew up in the area, but you're representing a lot large portion of the demographic that lives in that ward. Yeah. And that was by design. Right. That was because residents suit the city. Um, And and it's just really crazy because when we something like violating the Voting Rights Act or the California Voting Rights Act. We think it's like a very white city and it's like black residents who don't get to vote, (laughs) right? That's kind of the image that we have in our mind. I can understand that because that's where the Voting Rights Act uh, and where the, um, you know, civil rights movement grew out of. But in a city that's minority majority, like 10% or less actually of uh, Caucasians, non-Hispanic Caucasians, and 80% Latino. And previously, before Phil Becerra was elected, we had like 12 years of only Latinos on the council. Mm. Um, and so it's just kind of like turned on its head, but Santa Ana is kind of always turned on its head. And, you know, I'm very proud and honored and excited to be the first uh, first Asian woman and the first Vietnamese American on the dais because I get emails and calls all the time from folks not just in my ward, but if they're Vietnamese, they're probably going to call me if there's an issue um, or email me because they don't have anyone else that they can reach out to or talk to mm-hmm. um, and be like, you know, oh, I- I'm trying to get this boba shop open, but there's this issue. It wasn't even in our domain, but I'm going to help because he's a Santa Ana resident and a mm-hmm. business owner. And, uh, you know, that, that kind of leads me to my next thing, which is I'm so excited because um, last night, we finally voted our first vote on the budget, mm-hmm. uh, which is always crazy. It was like the third night regarding the budget. It's the third, like six plus hour meeting. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, one of the line items that we added that we've never had before is to budget for a Vietnamese community liaison. Mm-hmm. And it's something that I've been talking about since I started my campaign and even before. And the position, it sounds weird. I'm like, what is that? Well, the point is to have somebody at City Hall who is capable of translating documents, talking to folks on the phone, but also doing community outreach. You know, like if let's say I don't run for re-election or I die <laughs> and no other Vietnamese will run for office in Santa Ana, having someone who's a full-time staffer means that there's still going to be someone that residents can feel they can go to. So still do the work of um, going to work with nonprofits and temples and churches and community groups. And you don't have to rely on, you know, hopefully there's a decent Vietnamese candidate Mm -hmm. or or somebody else might take it up. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, really what we're supposed to be doing to institutionalize like equity. And, and when we're in, we're talking diversity and inclusion, it can't just be because you have a face of someone who's representative of that group, but to really do the work of ensuring that they're engaged and involved. So I'm very excited. We just got through the first hump. We have to vote again on the 15th. And then after that, staff has to go make the classification. Then we have to recruit. It's it's a long road, but I'm very excited because we have them in other cities and Mm -hmm. schools have them. (laughs) Okay, yeah. And I think like you said with the schools, I think it ultimately provides comfortability you know, I think that's one thing I always recall back to my childhood. I didn't have a, Latin, a lot of Latino teachers growing up, mm-hmm. or councils or principals. So, you know, you're growing up in these Latino dominant 
communities and, and, and neighborhoods, but then you go to the schools and it's a lot of like other ethnicity teachers, which is fine, but sometimes you don't get that like personal one-on-one experience. So that's, mm-hmm. I think that's huge that like, whether it's for the Vietnamese culture or the whatever population is there that we have equal representation and so just so they feel comfortable living here. Cause I think that's a huge thing too, it, to add to, I guess you could say the, um, the, what do you call that? The level of happiness, I guess, in the city, if that makes oh, sense. Oh yeah. Like the, um, you know, quality of life. Quality of life. There you go. <laughs> yeah. You no. Know, and it's just so crazy because like if we watched in a council meeting or whatever, you never hear a Vietnamese person call. It's very rare, super rare. I'm like, well, do Vietnamese people not care about housing affordability or safety or, you know, where the monies are going, our parks? No, they're all going to Westminster and Garden Grove and Fountain Valley and, you know, complaining <laughs> to those councils, even if they don't live there, because they feel that's their community, that they're welcome to uh, to speak up and have a voice. And um, I think here even in like during COVID because we have the call-in function now I mean I've seen so much more engagement and um, it's really exciting to hear folks uh, talk the issues and and to show up and and to really make their voices heard so that's really what I'm trying to do small step (laughs) with the Vietnamese uh, community here in Santa Ana. Mm. Now, speaking on the Vietnamese community here and just Orange County as a whole, because I've gotten the chance to work in Garden Grove. I did have to uh, I did have the luxury of having Fat Bowie, who's running for mm-hmm. Garden Grove mayor on last November as well. But talk to me a little bit about some of the things that may be misunderstood about the Vietnamese American experience, whether it's from your, your family and the refugee background or some some of the stuff that goes on here in the States. Yeah, so Vietnamese residents voters are not just veteran residents, tend to lean conservative. Um, of all, Asian Americans in general lean liberal, but Vietnamese Americans tend the other direction. They tend to be more Republican um, and they tend to be conservative. And a huge reason for that is because many of us came here in the 80s during the Reagan era. Mm-hmm. And the GOP has done a very good job of recruiting training and elevating Vietnamese American candidates. There's a bench of, um, of candidates of qualified, well, whatever you qualify, but a bench of people interested and able to run for office and to do that job. Um, I'm, I'm a Democrat. It's no secret. Um, I'm a Vietnamese Democrat. And it's, and I'm a Democrat because I believe in, you know, universal health care and, and Section 8 housing and affordable housing and a living wage, welfare for um, medical and, and housing, all of the things that keep people afloat because I benefited from them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I was on Section 8. I had medical, um, it's called Medi-Cal, so Medicaid, and I had uh, food stamps. Mm-hmm. And without all of those investments for all 25 years of my life, you know, until I basically graduated high uh, college, I wouldn't have become a lawyer and pay a ton of money in taxes and give back. Right. But now I'm going to that for the rest of my life. Um, and so I, I feel very strongly that that's what the democratic party stands for, or at least we're trying, you know, Vietnamese Americans love all of those things. Mm-hmm. We love section eight and food stamps and, medical care and all that stuff, you can look at the data. The main reason why they're 
tend to be Republican is because Republicans are seen as more anti-communist and more anti-China. And this goes to the history of uh, the Vietnam War and the diaspora and the Vietnamese community and the sole reason why there is a Vietnamese American community here. And it's because, you know, those who represented or who fought for South Vietnam uh, was for, were forced to flee or, you know, after the communist takeover, a lot of like my parents and myself in my mom's belly uh, left for a better life. And so for many folks who are older, who tend to be very politically involved, they feel that loss, right? They feel like they were forced out of their homes, their homeland, their country, away from their families, being separated for decades, uh, potentially believing they were never going to see them again. Um, And they want that back. And they feel the Republican Party is the one that is really more anti-communist there's a growing divide between the older generation and the younger generation Mm. because um, follow Saigon happened 46 years ago. Mm -hmm. That's a long time, you know, that's two, maybe even three generations of you're being (laughs) really um, generous. So two Mm -hmm. generations uh, and people forget, and I'm not trying to belittle, you know, the fall of Saigon. It's something I care deeply because when my mom was trekking through that jungle with my dad, nine months pregnant to go to Thailand and gave birth to me three weeks. She believed she was never going to see her brothers and sisters again to go to a country she had never been to and doesn't speak the language and doesn't know anybody in the hopes that I, some unborn child might have a better life, Mm -hmm. but no guarantees. And so, you know, with that, it's just, there's, all these feelings just tied up into it. But I think for those of us who are younger, we are trying very hard to kind of um, make that sacrifice worth it by fighting for rights here country that we live now. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's something I think a lot of immigrant children feel <laughs> like we always want to make our parents sacrifices and hard work worth it. And, you know, and I think I see so many more young Asian Americans and Vietnamese Americans trying to get involved, trying to get more folks involved and engaged, but it's hard because we also still have this whole mentality here, uh, Vietnamese Americans, Chinese Americans, Asian Americans in general of, you know, the stereotype work hard, then you'll do well, Mm -hmm. but that's a complete lie. (laughs) That's bullshit. (laughs) Working hard doesn't get you where you need to be. It might help you, but it's about opportunity. Mm -hmm. It's about second and fourth chances. And it's about somebody saying, I'm going to take a risk on you. Right. And I'm going to trust you. And so when you put aside, it's like hard work and just be quiet, don't make a fuss and you'll do okay. Maybe in some circumstances they will do okay, but you're never going to get to a place it's safe where that you are included or you're a part of this community. And we see that every generation. So you know, in the 80s, we had the murder of Chin, where he, you know, he's Chinese, he was Chinese American, and he was murdered by two white guys, because they thought he was Japanese. Mm. Now, before that, you had Japanese internment of you know, American internment of Japanese American citizens, mm-hmm. right, and to take their life and property and everything, and to round them up, and put them away, because they looked 
um, from the typical quote American. And more recently, right, we have Kung flu and China virus and, mm-hmm. you know, anti-Asian hate uh, just resurfacing um, all of these tensions that have existed forever and putting your head down and working hard is not going to get rid of that. And we, you know, aren't immune here in Santa Ana. I tell people uh, my senior year in high school, we almost had prom canceled at Los Amigos because someone spray painted chink on all of our lockers. Wow. This was in 2006. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's not that long ago. Mm -hmm. And, you know, during my election, there were uh, independent expenditures like political activities like PACs who spent money to do flyers or mailers in Vietnamese um, saying that I was basically a communist because they know how that makes people feel. Mm -hmm. And there were articles and Facebook posts that I saw that was like, well, are we going to have too many Asians? Can't let the Asians take over, you know, like these things, they, they're not um, just out there in the world, but they're here in our own city. So really, you know, doing this work when we're talking about Vietnamese community, who are Vietnamese voters, we have to understand the history of why that is. And then also understand that it's kind of our job to, to, fully realize that and then still with them because there are more Vietnamese American voters or Vietnamese voters here who are starting to lean a little bit, you know, like we want universal care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like uh, we want to be able to retire with dignity and yeah. we want to have jobs that pay better than, you know, $10 an hour for backbreaking work. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that that's, a lot of the Vietnamese community, and as I tell you, it's not that different from the Latino community. Right. You know, and definitely not very from the Cubans and Venezuelans. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have, we have a very similar story um, and trajectory. But um, I think the hard part when we're talking about, well, what is our history and what is our political power and how do we, how do we make this place better for us? It's also really difficult because you know, Vietnamese Americans are much poorer, mm. Chinese Americans and um, Korean Americans and Japanese Americans, Indian Americans, but we also all speak different languages. Mm-hmm. Like, of course, there's no quote Latino vote because of lots of different countries and whatnot, but you can communicate <laughs> with each other. You can talk to each other. Unless you're bilingual, a typical Vietnamese person is not going to be able to talk to a typical Japanese person if they don't speak English. Mm-hmm just totally different languages. And so you also have a lot of um, dilution of power uh, when you can't work together. And there's, again, history. Chinese and Vietnamese history in you know the, the homeland is very complicated. And then some of that gets brought here. Mm. So, you know, that that's kind of understanding the community and what we have to look at and work on so we can move forward from that. Okay. I kind of wanted to follow up too with, you mentioned the Asian hate that we've seen, especially since the coronavirus broke out here in the United States and has been on all the media outlets. You're not, I, know, I know you're a big advocate for stopping Asian hate, but are just what are ways that the common everyday citizen can combat these things, whether it is Asian hate or just hate against any other races, religion, or people with different skin color? I would say the first thing is to educate yourself. First thing, go read, <laughs> go Google, go, you know, check out these posts and podcasts and 
know, videos, even on YouTube, like, you know, don't believe everything you read, but, but go do that work because it's fucking exhausting <laughs> to explain to somebody, you know, what no more is or why Vietnamese people um, in America hate communism or it's just tiring, right? Mm-hmm. Trying to explain yourself all the time. So being an ally and trying to fight that is to educate yourself and doing the work yourself and not relying on the community that is actually being harmed to for you. The second, and that applies to everybody uh, mm-hmm. and, and any community that is being harmed. The second thing is calling out the people you're closest to when they do something stupid mm-hmm. or wrong or racist or anything. Um, you know, that includes your parents, that includes your best friend. If, you know, I see the other day someone joked and no, no malicious content he's like oh man you got gypped well you know what gypped is a derogatory term for romani people in europe they're uh-huh. nomadic and they have been prosecuted for hundreds of years including prosecuted not uh, persecuted excuse me by the nazis wow and you know killed like the jews were And so we don't really, we're not understanding, we're not learning, we're not um, being, you know, educating ourselves on what these things mean. And that it means also, frankly, you know, just mean in Spanish, because, you know, in Santa Ana, right? Mm -hmm. I get called chinita all the time. Mm -hmm. But because in Spanish, you just kind of say, oh, it's chinita, but I'm not Chinese. Mm -hmm. And I know that for some, it's just a general Asian, but it's not. There is a term for Asian. There's a term for Vietnamese. It's Vietnamita. I looked it up. <laughs> and it's the same thing for Vietnamese people. Um, we Every Latino person may, which means Mexican, because don't call a Salvia Mexican. I don't need to get into that fight. And um, using your language purposefully and um, correctly and with, I think, empathy is really important because the things we say hurt, right? The things that we joke about hurt and it may not hurt you mm-hmm. or the next person, but it's hurting the person who's probably too afraid to say anything about it. And that's really where we have to be really careful. And right, saying China virus, I'm not Chinese. I can just yeah. say it's not me. But to a typical, you know, abuelita, it's like, well, chinitas. Right. And and that's the same with a lot of communities or to a white person from Idaho who's like, well, you all look oriental to me. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, That's that's really crucial, I think, in doing the work. I would say the last thing is working in solidarity with each other and not just working with the ethnic group or the in-group or whoever it is you're most comfortable with. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I really think it's about, you know, having these conversations um and and saying, well, where am I, you know, failing or where can I do better? And, and same with you. And how do we create or create spaces or post and share and uplift each other? Uh, like, I think all of those three things are just crucial. And they're just the first step, yeah. <laughs> really, to, to this whole conversation. But if you can't do the work, if you're not able to speak up on behalf of others, and you're not willing to work with the other person, there's really nowhere to go. Mm-hmm. So, so that's what I would say is um, truly important uh, because nothing happens in a silo, right? Um, today, it's, you know, me being called 
Kung flu or a sexual object where that, you know, guy in Atlanta went and murdered eight people, six of them Asian American women, because he mm-hmm. had a quote sex addiction right. and he had to destroy his temptations. You know, the sexualization of Asian women didn't come out of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And tomorrow it could be, you know, so that kids who are not being separated at the border, right? Because I'm Vietnamese, I'm not going to get separated at the border. So, you know, but fighting in these spaces together is going to help us uplift all of our communities. And that's what I would recommend. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing to kind of tie a bow on it is that, you know, these things, like you said, there wasn't, this just didn't happen overnight. Like you said, there's mm-hmm. been a lot of, whether it's been influences by media, um, by different TV shows, and not just something within the past 20 years, but stuff that was long, long time ago. You know, there's a lot of stuff that were anti this, anti that. And so I think a lot of these people's, um, when they do make these uh, racist remarks based off of skin color, religion, or whatever it may be, it's because it's kind of taught down. And mm-hmm. I think COVID brought a lot of ugly out of that. But I think mm-hmm. what is encouraging a lot of you know younger people, people in the millennial generation, they want to learn more. Their quest for knowledge about these different topics, about these different um, racial issues, about these different, and like you said, the history about certain things is important. Um, and, and this is something that we saw, especially with Black Lives Matter last year, also mm-hmm. in the Stopping Asian Hate last year, things that like I had never heard about that were now coming to fruition. So it's, it's, it's things that, <clears throat> like I said, to tie a bow on it, it's not going to happen like in a year. It's not going to happen in two years. It's something that's going to take a long time. But like you said, just encouraging people to educate themselves on these topics that way, stuff like this. Because like you said, I feel like doesn't matter where you come from if you're a first generation person whether it's from cuba whether it's from you know chile whether it's from mexico or vietnam it's pretty i don't want to say it's exactly the same but it's similar in the experiences that you're struggling with especially people who have been here for generations and generations in the united states so i think you know if we were more unified to definitely help the people i guess you could say in that demographic to kind of rise to power or different positions to where it's more equal and we can all have uh, a slice of the pie you know Right. And it's just, it's just so crazy that, um, you know, for example, Asians have been the first Asian American step foot in North America in the 1500s. Like Filipinos, uh, they step foot in America, North America. And, but we would say the big uh, kind of influx of Asian Americans, mostly Chinese were, you know, in the 1800s. And we built the goddamn intercontinental railroad <laughs> yeah. right? made that happen. There would be no West coast, East coast travel if not for that uh, with slaves building the East side. And so we're talking about like, you know, hundred some odd years and people still think we're foreigners. There are Chinese people living in the South who've been here for like eight generations and they're still like, well, we're where are you really from? <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, and it's, it's really hard to fight that, but it's really about uh, constantly uh, being vigilant and it's exhausting, but that's why we have to do it. <laughs> so we need allies, right? Mm-hmm. The, the group that is disempowered is not going to be able to take over power. You need the people in power to, to land. Um, and that happened in so many circumstances. And we don't, if we don't, recognize that we're not going to get as far as we want but you know whether it's the american revolution we're about democracy and stuff i'm like no (laughs) it only let white men with slaves and property vote right you know you're talking about the civil rights movement 
that happened because some rich white politicians were like, oh, other white politicians in the other, you know, in Europe are pissed at us. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's the only reason and I'm not belittling the, the fight. I'm just saying that having allies is, is so crucial to ensuring that we move forward. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I want to put it on people who want to be allies, people who say allies to do that work too. Mm-hmm. Um, and to really be there, not to speak for us, but to help uplift us so that we can get through the door, so we can be in the room, so that we can have those opportunities uh, to do that work. Mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I agree with you. It's going to be a long time, right? Yeah. 200 years later and we're still being asked, where are you from? So um, <laughs> still got a long ways to go. Okay. Now, fast tracking a little bit to your position now as a council member or some issues that you're really pushing for during your election that you've been able to maybe not necessarily get done right away, but you have made motions into getting them done near, in the near future? Well, first, um, I had mentioned the Vietnamese community liaison, mm-hmm. basically cried on the dais <laughs> a little bit, just a little, like, okay, maybe I stopped myself, but I was just so, like, I've been talking about that for a long time, and just me, like, someone like my mom, you know, she goes down to City Hall, and there's no, most likely there's nobody who can speak with her. And, and like how frustrating and how wrong that is, right? Try to call ourselves a diverse and inclusive and equitable city and not do that. Mm-hmm. And 30 years ago, Latinos didn't have that. Like we didn't have Spanish documents at City Hall. Like, yeah. That blows our mind, right? <laughs> and so um, for me, getting that line item on the budget was just very overwhelming and very exciting, even though I know it's still a long way, but the first step is kind of the hardest. So people recognize that there's really an issue and that they want to do something about it. Uh, Some of the other stuff that I've worked on is um, the hazard pay ordinance. That was kind of like the big, the first big thing that I worked on. Mm -hmm. And it was controversial because some people are like, well, what about, you know, city employees? What about people in medical sector and all this? Like, dude, if I got the money, I would, and everybody raise, you know, like I believe in having you know, higher pay for workers and worker protections and things like that. We have that in Europe. Why can't we here? But I don't have a magic wand. I don't have, you know, the deepest pockets in the world. Mm-hmm. But what I do have is data. And what we see is that grocery stores, uh, corporations and companies were making record multi-billion dollar profits mm-hmm. during the freaking pandemic. Yeah. And, you know, their workers are eight, nine, $10 an hour, sometimes $20 an hour if they're a manager, you know, on the front lines, dealing with assholes who wouldn't wear a mask, who would yell at them, who would harass them, who would do all these horrible things. Like, dude, I signed up to freaking bad groceries, not like get attacked by a racist person. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and we saw that these grocery stores and, and other companies were paying this quote hero pay once the pandemic first hit, right? And then they just stopped. COVID got really bad, they still didn't bring it back. And so for me, the hazard pay ordinance wasn't really even about paying them going forward, but they, but it's to like make up for the fact that these you know employers didn't do it sooner. Mm. And it was a short period of time, it's 120 days and it'll end June 30th. So, that was kind of the really the first big thing I did. I'm just like still super proud and obviously jazzed about it <laughs> and uh, super excited because I was speaking at a U.S. history class at Los Amigos High School. 
past week, week before, and one of the students came up in the Zoom camera, you know, at the teacher's camera and says, you know, are you the one who's responsible why I get paid $14 an hour? I'm like, yes, Mm -hmm. yes, I am. And she was so grateful. Um, And that's just, you know, why we're here. So I was really excited. And then, um, of course, the other thing was really speaking up and out about stop and, you know, stopping anti-Asian hate. Mm -hmm. And it was and still is so exhausting because it's a lot of emotional shit like um you know crying and and just being tired and having to show up and look like an emotional adult in front of people and get interviewed about why we're so pissed or angry or sad uh and what to do about it um but i am very proud to be able to use my platform this title uh to talk about it because i think a lot of people don't and a lot of women, particularly, you know, women of color are just, and it's, it was a time for us to be able to say something about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and on top of that, be able to use this platform to fight for immigration reform. So, you know, immigration is a, a federal issue, but mm-hmm. there are a lot of things we can do on the state and local level to make immigration issues a little bit more equitable. So using my title to fight for the pardoning of Ang Tan Wing, who is a Vietnamese refugee who is facing deportation. You know, he came here as a teenager mm-hmm. and you know, got in with the wrong crowd and served his time in California prison for 20 years and was a really great inmate, paid his dues to society. And then instead of coming home to his family, he got paid twice. Wow. Because California is a sanctuary state, but guess what? The California prison system can still transfer people to ICE. Wow. And so, so, you know, ask the governor to pardon Anne, which is the only way that he would not uh, get deported, but two, um, also advocating for the passage of the Vision Act, which would prevent this type of transfer from happening again in the state of California. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, of course, I'm working with... Uh, advocacy groups like Viet Rise and OC Justice Fund and all of that, but really just to be able to use this title, this voice, this face mm-hmm. <laughs> that people might might even care about what I'm saying uh, to advocate and uplift these issues. So uh, that's what I've been doing. going to keep working on it. Um, there are a lot more issues, housing affordability, mm-hmm. uh, working on youth services that like, you know, figuring out ways to address public safety, but by investing in young people and art and parks, um, there's just so much more to do, but I have to kind of remind myself time. <laughs> so, so that's kind of where we are. Okay. Awesome. Well, as we wrap things up, I do have a few more questions for you just to kind of get the audience to know you a little bit better. Sure. The first one I wanted to ask, what is something that you learned about yourself in the downtime that we had during 2020 when the pandemic hit? Okay, first of all, the premise of the question is terrible because I did not have downtime. Oh, that's right. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So um, so here, one thing I learned about myself was that um, I am not, well, I guess I already knew it. I'm not a naturally anxious person. I became an anxious person uh, during the campaigns. Mm. Um, And and I just want to share this because so often in politics, we kind of, not kind of, we do, we dehumanize the you know, whether it's a candidate we don't like or don't agree with or the other party, but it was really hard. I was working 
basically full-time. It's attorney part-time, people full-time. And I was the only one working in my family. My mm. husband had just separated from the military uh, honorably. He finished his commission. And the pandemic hit <laughs> in the wow. middle of the pandemic. My sister eventually graduated from optometry school in the middle of the pandemic. So she wasn't getting a job either. So, you know, we're all living in this house and I have student loans. I graduated with a quarter million dollars loans. So I had to make sure I was doing my job to pay for this house that we live in and pay my student loan debt and all this other stuff. It's not federal loans because we re and then also like campaigning Mm -hmm. (laughs) or learning how to campaign, asking for money. And also, frankly, trying not to let this Vietnamese down. Like I felt that pressure and part of it is really me Mm -hmm. putting it on myself, but I was the only Vietnamese person running in the quote Vietnamese ward. Mm. Like how horrible would it be if I lost? (laughs) So I actually started um, journaling Mm. any moment where I would feel anxious or, or just overwhelmed. I would just start writing down what I was feeling and why and what I can do about it. And that helped me. And that was really weird because I'd never done that before. Um, but I found it wor- really worked for me uh, during the and Hopefully it'll help someone else who's listening. Awesome. Yeah. I love hearing that. Now, if you could meet any three people dead or alive, who would you want to speak with and conversate with the most? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I don't, I've never really thought about this question. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so dead or alive. Um, so I, a Hillary Clinton apologist. Mm-hmm. True. I, okay. I admit it. So I want to meet her um, because I feel like she, whether you like her or not, or the policies or whatever, she was the first like sort of political figure I'd ever remembered mm-hmm. because I remember the Monica and Bill uh, scandal, mm-hmm. Monica Lewinsky and stuff. And um, Hillary just in my mind kind of exists in the space of an incredibly smart woman lawyer right woman lawyer (laughs) who got married who has a husband who had all these dreams and 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 she was supporting him but she was like fighting against this kind of patriarchal norm like she used to be hillary rodham when Mm. she married she never changed her last name until he lost sorry not he lost but like during his campaign for arkansas governor she changed her name because Mm. people were expecting it uh in the south and so just kind of the place been and, and the things that she's seen or done in politics in the State Department with foreign countries and and frankly also being the wife of a man who cheated on her so publicly so many times mm-hmm. um, I, I just find like that's there's just so many questions but I don't know if she would ever answer them <laughs> okay. um, but just to be able to um, talk about some of that and how she dealt with it uh, because us local government folks it's like so minor compared to you know, being on the screen and like Benghazi emails and, and everything about your life is kind of picked apart. So um, I would love to kind of meet her. I would say, uh, if, well, I'd like to do a fictional character. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, um, I would be really interested in meeting, you know, the characters of Harry Potter. Mm. I'm a millennial. I know that J.K. Rowling is a turf and we don't like her, but <laughs> her stories are great. And as a millennial, it's just so um, like her, the books got me through the 2016 mm. election. Like I remember because I had flown to Vegas. My husband was stationed in Vegas at the time. 
And I was like, we're going to watch the election together, the results and all this. And she lost. <laughs> so I went to bed early. I couldn't watch anymore. And the next morning I almost didn't show up to work. Like I didn't, mm. I almost was like, I'm going to skip my flight and not come. And, um, but I decided to go to work because I reminded myself American slaves, black slaves got up every day and worked hard during Jim Crow, during the civil rights era. I can do, do this mm-hmm. if they can do this. And uh, so that got me to work, but really just being so upset, listening to the Harry Potter books really helped me get through it because mm. in my mind, at the end of the day, it defeat Voldemort and Trump was my Voldemort. Anyhow, that was, <laughs> that <awesome>. was my, <laughs> so it got me through, but you know, the characters, um, they're just friends, mm-hmm. uh, people who seemingly normal or someone like Harry who wanted to be a normal kid and who had this great responsibility to do the right thing, even when every person, adult person is like telling him that he's wrong or mm-hmm. that he's being used or, or any of these other things. So um, that would just be, you know, a little okay. childhood dream come true. <laughs> awesome. All right. Two more easier questions. If you could have any topping on a pizza, what would it be? Oh no, just one. No, Wait, no, any toppings. Pizza. You can have oh, multiple. Oh, yeah. any toppings. Okay, well, popular opinion, but it has to have pineapple. Love pineapple on pizza. Anybody who says otherwise is wrong because <laughs> pineapple is slightly sour and sweet and it cuts through the fat. That's really what you need to have the balance, okay? Okay. <laughs> um, and I like cheese, mushroom, Italian sausage, ham, mm. and olives with onion. Okay. I think that's my order. All right. Yes. Awesome. If you could be reincarnated to any animal, what would it be? So if I'm being honest, <laughs> okay, my not honest answer is some type of bird Okay. that flies. Like maybe like a bald eagle. It's like, okay. you know, they're protected now. No one can kill them. And they're like, <laughs> they kill other things. Right. Super cool. But if I'm really being honest, I'd probably be in, <laughs> reincarnated into a house cat because they get to sleep all day they're pampered they need to put it with people loving them they just love when they want mm-hmm. perfect <laughs> awesome okay then last question if you could give any advice to your younger self what would it be this is something that i actually discovered this past year mm-hmm. <laughs> and my piece of advice is give zero fucks mm. not in the things that you you should care very much about the things you do but give zero fucks about putting aside your feelings so that other people would feel comfortable um give zero fucks about being bad or looking wrong or saying the wrong things because at the end of the day being genuine to yourself and to the community and you know your family is in my opinion the most important thing um i try to live my life as you know honestly as I can and um it can be really hard especially politics um you know because everything you say someone can take it the wrong way or someone can say well she's this or that mm-hmm. um but also in politics you're just like well I maybe want to offend somebody because they might donate or they might support me or they might endorse me or they might vote for me but I one time during you know a rally, a stop Asian hate rally, mm-hmm. in which this white dude, conservative mayor Fullerton, came up and started talking about how we shouldn't hate Asians because they do so well in school and and that's why people don't like them. Like total model minority myth bullshit. Yeah. And I was like so close to going up there to just be like, you know, this guy is wrong. He's saying racist. Is not what we're here. Blah blah. 
but the organizer is like, you know, we're not rebut him, let him look stupid. We're just going to move along. Mm-hmm. And in respect for that organizer, I didn't go up there and do this thing. Mm-hmm. And then I was pissed for like four days. <laughs> and I'm still pissed because at the end of the day, you know, I prioritize the organizer's comfort. I prioritize the press's comfort and speaker's comfort over the truth mm-hmm. and over my own truth and my comfort and the truth and comfort of all the Asian women who were there. Mm. So that's what I would say. Because at the end of the day, with it, you have to live with yourself. Mm-hmm. And if all you do is regret or feel like you should have said something, that's going to be so much harder than saying, well, I said it. Now I know next time not to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, thank you again so much for being a part of the show. Before you go, go ahead and promote anything that you'd like to promote, whether it's a website or something that maybe in the election this year or whatever you need to promote. Well, luckily, I don't have to run for re-election until 2024. Okay. But I do, you know, ask that folks listening, check out my Instagram page. It's at Fan. Facebook is TyVietFan2020 or Twitter, TyVFan. My Twitter is not very involved in Santa Ana stuff. It's really more my commentary state and federal stuff. So mm. uh, if that's what you're looking for, it's, it's probably a little bit more fun, but I have to be more careful <laughs> with it because you can't edit on Twitter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Of course. Thank you again. Boom. That's going to wrap it up for another episode of the My Mike and I podcast. Be sure to like, subscribe, and follow the podcast wherever platform you're listening on. If you want to watch this podcast with visuals, be sure to check us out on YouTube. You can just look up Noah Alvarez, my name, or my mic and I, and you'll find the podcast there with visuals. Now, also be sure to check out my mic and I Instagram page at my period mic and period I. That's the probably the, the the time I spent most on as far as all the social media platforms. And if you want to be on the show or you have any questions or feedback on the show, best way to reach out to me for sure. Now, be sure to check out True 100 Radio on social media platforms like Twitter and Facebook, as well as their website at True 100 Radio, spelled T-R-U, the number one, 100radio.com for other podcasts, some articles, a lot of sports articles right now too, and just plenty more of stuff coming in the in the near future. Right? I mean, we're, we're a radio station, online radio station. I know I don't really talk much about it on here because I just promote it. But, I mean, we're planning some pretty dope shit in the near future. I don't want to spoil too much. Maybe closer to the date, uh, I can say a little bit more. But it's going to be fun. It's going to be a fun summer. It's going to be a fun 2021. Keep your eyes open for True 100 Radio. Other than that, guys, hope you are continuing to overcome any obstacles that you may be facing with right at this very second. Hope you continue to chase your dreams, not checks. Never stop seeking knowledge. And man, just hope you have a wonderful, 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 absolutely, positively, tremendous day, week, year, whenever you're listening to this. Appreciate y'all and have a wonderful day. I'm Noah Alvarez, the host of the Mike and I podcast, signing off. Till next time.